Hello, and welcome to the She's Heard podcast. My name is Emily Jennings, and you found the place where extraordinary everyday people from different professions and walks of life share about how they found their voice and are using it to speak up and create meaningful change. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Cassandra Johnson, author of Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World. Michelle has a deep understanding of how trauma impacts the mind, body, spirit, and heart. Her experience and awareness as a black woman allow firsthand knowledge of how privilege and power operate. She understands the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual toll that oppression can take on individuals and the collective. She is a social justice warrior, empath, yoga teacher, intuitive healer, and has a background as a licensed clinical social worker. Whether in an anti-oppression training, yoga space, individual or group intuitive healing session, Michelle holds healing and wholeness at the center of her work. She spent many years on the front lines of justice movements craving a space for healing through ritual, ceremony, and sacred practice. While working in many nonprofits with missions focused on justice, she didn't find a space that centered healing as a guiding tool to create justice. So she created her own space and way of working. Michelle leads anti-racism trainings and yoga workshops focused on the intersection of justice and yoga. She also offers intuitive healing sessions to support social justice workers, healers, and activists to help sustain the good work that they do in the world. Michelle also began her own teacher training in 2014 to inspire change that allows people to stand in their humanity and wholeness in a world that fragments most of us. There are a myriad of ways to work with Michelle, and you can learn more at michellecjohnson.com. In this episode, Michelle talks about how she came to yoga by way of the breath, and how your breath can be a form of resisting oppression. She shares how yoga and social justice overlap. We talk about spiritual bypassing and ways to disrupt it. We also hear a little bit from her beloved dog, Jasper. This conversation was especially memorable because things were a bit chaotic as Michelle was preparing to move to North Carolina and I was finishing up an intense weekend conference in Portland. The quietest place we were able to find was her car, so you'll hear occasional street noises. During our conversation, I was especially struck by a poem you'll hear at the beginning of our conversation as it so clearly demonstrates the unshakable demand of life. I was also deeply moved by the unmessable strength, clarity, vitality, resilience, and wisdom Michelle carries with her from her grandmothers and grandmothers' grandmothers. It truly is an honor to listen and learn from Michelle and to share this conversation with you. Wait, this is awesome. We should be like videoing this too. Like all the... Love it. Okay. The garbage truck went by. The garbage truck is down the street. It's a busy day. It is a busy day. They're working a lot today. And we're having a good conversation. We are. It's amazing doing all the things. Jasper's definitely going to be like. (laughs) Ready. All right. So this is hilarious. And so (laughs) serendipitous. It's awesome. Because we are in Portland, Oregon. I know. In Michelle's car that's full of her stuff as you're moving across the country. Yeah. And we're here with Jasper, her dog, who's so cute. He's a special guest. <laughs> and he's our special guest as well. <laughs> and this is really serendipitous oh. because I just happened to be in Portland for the weekend, like I the know. last weekend that you're here. And I'm like, ah, let's do an interview. That's so great. Worked out. 
Thanks Perfect. for asking. Yeah. Asking us, Jasper and Michelle, to interview, share our wisdom. Yeah, mm-hmm. to hear your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the intention of this is to show the arc of what it takes to fully be yourself mm-hmm. and own your voice and to speak up. And that's a process. And it's different for everybody. And that is perfect. Um, and I think it's really easy to think that there's a right way to do it or to get lost in comparing. So that's why I do this podcast just as much for myself mm-hmm. as I do for those that are willing to listen and ready to hear it. So um, I was wondering, will you please start by reading that beautiful poem that you open your book with? Yes, I would yeah. love to. And thanks for having us here in my car with my stuff <laughs> and, and your flower crown and flower crown and flowers and feathers there's a lot going on there's a lot going on that's awesome and we are committed despite the chaos we are we are we've been through in the middle of the chaos mm-hmm. so I'm gonna read a poem from my book which is called where I'm from and it's based on a template that Ella Lyons created um, she was a teacher and use this template to help people explore uh, where they're from, from uh, the spaces that they're from and the experiences, the memories, the people. And so this poem is in the spirit of sharing some about where I'm from. I'm from Clara and Cornelius, a warrior mama and a contradiction for a papa. I'm from the afterbirth, which came out before me and the baby boy my mama miscarried two years before having me. I'm from the nurse pulling me out because I was losing oxygen and immobile, unwilling to enter this brutal and beautiful world. I'm from two pounds and three ounces of strength and a full head of hair, fingernails and underdeveloped lungs. I'm from asthma, primatine mist and nebulizer treatments. I'm from being away from my mother and father for the first nine days of my life. I'm from hospital lights, loud sounds, and various nurses picking me up and checking my vitals. I'm from Dorothy and Fred, summers spent in their yard playing the stoplight game, making vanilla milkshakes, mud pies, and picking hydrangeas from my grandmother's backyard. I'm from Whitewood Road, the man in the mirror, my guardian angel, and the yellow wallpaper in a kitchen that was always full of laughter, noise, life. I'm from Madonna, Michael, Duran Duran, MC Hammer, Purple Rain, and Joan Armatraden. I'm from being the only black girl in my class, and you're not like the other kids, Michelle. I'm from private school. You talk white, you dress white, and do you think you're white? I'm from do the best that you can. You are black and beautiful, and show them who you really are, Michelle. I'm from the loneliness, not fitting in, confusion of what it meant to live in the middle of black and white. I'm from being awake at a very young age, seeing the ways of the world that made no sense to me, but that let me know suffering is real, it happens across color lines, and it is killing people. I'm from wanting to create a world where everyone can move in physical space, freely, without fear. I'm from liberation, yours and mine, ours. I'm from the breath, each inhale and exhale. I am from you, and you are from me. feels sweet to share that the line that's uh, the first line after the poem is I came to yoga by way of the breath Mm -hmm. and I 
begin my yoga story that way because the breath feels like it is the practice of yoga. And when I was born, I couldn't breathe, as I referenced in the Where I'm From poem. My mother was in labor for three days, and she, uh, I wouldn't come out. The afterbirth came out, though, before I came out, and then I still wouldn't come out. Um, so they, I was losing oxygen, and they did a C-section, an emergency C-section. And they took me out and took me to a different hospital because it was 1975, and they have much better resources now for preemies than they did then. And so my mother woke up to no baby and didn't have any idea where I was, and I was two pounds and three ounces in an incubator all the way across town. Um, and that's why I didn't see my parents for the first nine days of my life. My father wasn't there, um, and my mother was in the hospital for nine days and finally got to see me. And so when I talk about the breath um, in yoga and in anti-racism trainings and in sacred spaces, it's from a place of not being able to breathe. Um, and being in a black body and being two pounds and three ounces and birthed by a black woman who didn't have the privilege of fighting for me to be in this space with her at the time um, in a system, a healthcare system that has been racist, historically racist, and is still racist now and oppressive. So the breath is really central to my experience. And we live in a culture where systems are killing people and, and not giving them space to breathe. And so from my birth until now, I feel like the breath has been vital and I've been fighting to breathe. Mm -hmm. Not only how I came into the world, but both of my parents have asthma. So I have asthma too, and remember growing up and going to the hospital when it was bad enough um, and just not being able to breathe freely or deeply. And that mirrors my experience of oppression, and I know it mirrors the experience of oppression for many people. Mm -hmm. So that's why I start with the breath. It really is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. and, and fighting to breathe is where I'm from. And that's why it's a radical act of resistance. Mm -hmm. I heard you say that uh, before, yeah. and, I, and I get that, especially more so hearing your story, like, of coming into the world. Right. Yeah. And surviving, anyway, right. alone, right. like, except for nurses, deciding to, to live in spite of what was, what's been going on in the world, what was going on then. Mm -hmm. So it does feel like a radical act of resistance to thrive through the breath. Mm-hmm. How would you describe yourself growing up? I was, um, I grew up in a neighborhood and um, I didn't have very many friends in my neighborhood. My mm -hmm. brother's four years older and he, for some reason, a lot of children were in the neighborhood that, that they were his same age and that wasn't the case for me. So I was sort of a loner in a way in my neighborhood um, and quiet and we had a dog, her name was Princess, growing up, and I spent a lot of time, apparently I spent a lot of time talking to Princess, my mother said. <laughs> I wore big sunglasses and had a um, radio flyer wagon, and I would put Princess in the wagon and roll her around the yard. So I had a deep relationship with um, the natural world and animals um, and our pets, um, who were definitely part of our family. And then in school, my mother got scholarships for my brother and I to go to private school. So I was the only black girl in my class um, until 
10th grade when I switched schools. And where, what part of the country was this? I was in Richmond, Virginia. Okay. Um, and I went to school, its name is Collegiate, it's called Collegiate, um, an Episcopal school. We grew up Baptist, though. And then in 10th grade, I went to a Catholic school, an all-girls Catholic school. And it was more diverse, uh, definitely more people of color and people with different income levels there. Um, and that was not the case at Collegiate. It felt like, one, I was the only person, only black person in my class. There may have been other people of color, but I don't, I don't remember them. Um, and if we did have other people of color, not many in the class. And so I went to school with children who had a lot of money. And I would go to their houses and I would see their housekeepers. And then I would connect that my grandmother was a housekeeper and she cleaned Miss Solomon's house and she would complain about cleaning Miss Solomon's house, Mr. and Mrs. Solomon. And Mr. Solomon was a doctor. She would also, they would give her things that she would bring home and she would talk about nice things like clothes or dishes. And she would talk about getting those objects from them. And I always, it just struck me that she had pride in her job. It struck me that that was the job that was available to her and that I was going to school with children who had housekeepers that looked just like her. So that was confusing for me because I thought, is that, is that what I'm going to do? And there's nothing wrong with that. It just, I was having a racialized experience mm -hmm. in a white school mm -hmm. pretty much um, and a very different experience than the white students. My mother would say when I would ask for an outfit or to go on a trip, she would say, you're not, you're different. You're not like the other kids. Um, you can't have that thing. She didn't say that all the time because I had enough. I had what I needed. And so what I internalized is that I was bad. Um, different was bad uh, through the lens of race in that setting and class in school. And so I was, you know, a loner in my neighborhood, but at school I had friends. But still I was lonely because I was having such a different experience than my peers. Mm -hmm. And when I switched schools... Um, because it was more diverse, I, there, I, was, I didn't feel as lonely as I did at Collegiate. And I was still sitting with the internalization of different being bad, though. So, some about, about growing up. Um, the other thing about growing up is my mom was a special education teacher for 30 years, or 32 years. And I was in her classroom a lot. And during the summertime, she would work. And then after school, when I was really young, I would go to her classroom. And um, being in her classroom has everything to do with why I am a, uh, why I ended up being a social worker, an anti-racism trainer, a healer. Mm -hmm. Because she would, the way she cared for her students and their families, I, I, I just hadn't witnessed anything like that. And I knew it was like above and beyond her job. There's Jasper. It was above and beyond her job <laughs> to um, be caring for her students in the way that she she did. Because I didn't witness other teachers doing that, and I didn't witness teachers taking care of me in that way. And so I learned a lot from her about what it means to, to take care of people, what it really means to take care of people and to live into a practice of caring for people. Um, so that was another part of my experience, sort of in contrast to going to school mm -hmm. and being isolated, than being in her room and witnessing her embracing the children she worked with. Mm -hmm. 
and their families, um, regardless of how they showed up in the space. Mm-hmm. So I had both of those experiences. And that's a, a unique soul that can show up for all levels of um, ability. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to see that and hold the humanity in so much mm-hmm. uh, range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I definitely learned that from my mother. That's like a gift from her to yeah. witness her do that. And so then that, so then you went to college and decided you wanted to be a social worker. Yeah, mm-hmm. I went to the College of William and Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not go back there now. Is that in Virginia? It's in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in Colonial Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. And um, does he want to come up here? Hey, Jasper. You want to come up? You can navigate your way up here. Can you? Yeah. You want to come sit in my lap? He's like, how do I? Come on. Little start. Yeah, it's okay. Come here. It's like a bridge of flowers. There you go. You want to sit in her lap? You can sit in my lap. That's okay. the best part of the interview. <laughs> do you want to come over here? You want to sit there? Okay. Come here. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's. He's like, I'm a pack animal. I need to be in the mix. You can sit right there. <laughs> so I went to um, the College of William and Mary mm-hmm. in Colonial Williamsburg. And that's where so much of the construction of this country and oppression started mm-hmm. in Colonial Williamsburg. And I actually ended up going there because I knew that going to college was going to be a financial burden for my mom. Mm -hmm. And they gave me um, not a full scholarship, but the most money. And so I went there. Mm -hmm. That's really why I made the decision. It was to uh, hopefully to just decrease the stress for for my mom. And it was an isolating experience there because I was, you know, had internalized that different was bad. And I was carrying that, and then I wasn't black enough, and I wasn't white, and I knew that. So I was walking in with those identities, not really knowing where to land mm-hmm. and who to be in relationship with. I knew I was black, but the message from white people and black people was, you know, are you? do you think you're white? Because you talk white, right? Or you dress white, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. Um, and from black students because of internalized depression and I didn't understand what that was until much later telling me I wasn't black enough Mm -hmm. so I just felt like I was between worlds and I also most of my friends that I went to school with they were white and so I had a lot of white friends and hung out with people of color at ballet and at church and in my family and so college was isolating and confusing for me for those reasons. And I gr- actually graduated in three years because I wanted to get out of college. I did not like it at all. And I did graduate, and then I went right to grad school at UNC Chapel Hill for social work. My mother, while she was a special ed teacher, she was like, I will not support you in being a teacher. She's like, I will not pay for you to go to school to be a teacher. <laughs> Which is so interesting because she loved being a teacher and she was devoted to it. And it was also really challenging hmm. the way she taught which was more than teaching a lesson. I think that that's why she was, I think she would have supported me, but she was like, you're not being a teacher. That's not happening. Because it's just too hard. It's too hard. And it's too draining. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't make a lot of money. Right. Yeah. And I was like, well, I mean, social work is like teaching, and I get to um, lean into that lesson my mother taught me about humanity 
and um, it, it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I didn't make much as a social worker, have mm-hmm. not made much as a social worker either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was like, you know, when, when uh, Step removed from being a teacher, I think. And I went to um, grad school, this two-year social work program. I was the youngest person in my class because I'd graduated college in three years. And I think that experience was like what college is like for some people because my cohort had 30 people in it. It was like family. We took care of each other. In that sense, it was a really positive experience to be in a small group with people. Was that the first time you felt that way? I think so. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think so. And there was a lot of acceptance. Like our class was not very diverse. We did have four Michelles. Me, um, a Michelle who's Latino, Mm -hmm. Latina, um, and a Michelle who's white, and then a Michelle who's Asian. So the school, like, you know, did its Mm -hmm. tokenism, and and (laughs) we were the poster children for the program, (laughs) the four Michelles. um, Of all different backgrounds. Right? That's funny. It was like, whoa. So it was somewhat diverse. There was a lot of acceptance, though, in that space. And family. It felt mm-hmm. like family. So that was that was a really positive experience for me. Oh, Jasper. I know. He's trying I'm gonna to let get you... comfy. He is. This is wrapped around your paw, I think. <laughs> My mala is wrapped around your paw. Yeah, and so I finished grad school, and then I ended up staying in North Carolina for 20 years. And I started out working in a high school uh, which is interesting because my mother's like, don't be a teacher. So I'm like, I'm going to be a social worker and work in a school. Um, <laughs> and I loved it. I loved working in mm-hmm. this high school. I, I like, have been obsessed with teenage, dumb, te- being a teenager for a long time. Not that I want to be a teenager, but I think my teenage years were so mixed up that I envy, like, that time mm-hmm. and what it, what it can be for people, what it is and what it could have been for me and mm-hmm. what it wasn't. So like I watch teenage, I mean, I don't do it really now cause I don't have a TV, but like for years would watch shows with teenagers or read books, like mm-hmm. young adult books. And I feel like it was me wanting to relive or move through an experience that was different than the experience I had growing up. So it's perfect that I ended up working in a high school mm-hmm. and I was the social worker. And a lot of times social workers are focusing on truancy in high, in schools. What does that mean, truancy? Truancy, they're focusing on attendance. So they're oh, like okay. making sure students are coming to school, <coughs> and if they're not coming to school, then um, we go and do a home visit, and it's a fairly punitive model, I feel like. Because the way that social workers have been positioned in schools doesn't allow social workers to look at the systemic issues that might actually have led to a child not coming to school or a family not being resourced in the way that they need to be to support a child in school. Mm -hmm. It's not about that. It's like, you've missed this amount of days. You might not pass this class. Um, We can take you to court, Mm. your parents to court for, because you're not coming to school. I'm not interested in that at all. And I wasn't then. And so, and I had a really awesome principal at the school. And so he let me do the kind of social work I wanted to do. Hmm. And he let me offer counseling to students. I did do some home visits for sure, but I wasn't going and threatening people about taking them to court because their children didn't show up to school. I didn't approach anyone that way. I would do home visits to check on people um, to just see what was going on and if they were okay. And then I got to do all this programming around, I started the Women's Caucus there. So I got to do programming with young women about feminism 
And I started a um, diversity day is what it was called. And I did that for three years where we invited people in from the community and the whole school would participate in these sessions where they'd be learning about diversity and difference and oppression and privilege and power. Every year I enhanced the program and every student would have had some small group discussion about difference in their experience in the school. So my principal let me do all of those things, which that's the kind of social change work that I wanted to do, different than social work around focusing on attendance. So I was there for four years and then I went to UNC Chapel Hill to work in the counseling center with college students and continued some of that work that I started in the high school around oppression and power and privilege and doing outreach to students who didn't come in for counseling and, and I sort of invited the counseling center to move through an anti-racism process, which is kind of what I do in spaces that usually every space I'm in end up, ends up going through some sort of anti-racism or anti-oppression process because that's what I, I think I require that or um, sometimes demand that by my presence in a space. Like I want um, us to have a discussion about difference and what's real and what's happening and how difference is being played out. So I worked at the university and at that time I started a private practice in social work and I also had gone to my first dismantling racism training actually did that in um, it's Jasper <clears throat> I did that in when I worked at the high school I was on the board for North Carolina Lambda Youth Network and they sent their board members to a dismantling racism training and so that's where I met Tema Oaken and Bree Carlson those were my trainers and that sort of changed my life mm -hmm. meeting them and that training then I went to work at the university, and then I started training up as a dismantling racism trainer. Is that when she said, you need to love white people? Yeah. Um, it was early on. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was my first year of training up, but it was within the first three years of training up. Mm. My dear friend, Tema Oaken, and just beloved and uh, amazing anti-racism trainer and mentor and teacher for me, we had a discussion and I, I'm not sure where I was in my racial identity as far as whether or not I was in rage um, or depression. I don't know what prompted her to say this to me. Um, perhaps I was talking about how a white person was showing up in this space. And it's actually interesting that Tema said it to me because we've gone back and forth where she'll remind me that I need to love white people and, and, and center love in this work and I'll remind her of that. So we have that kind of relationship mm -hmm. now. But initially it was her being like, you know, you have to love white people to do this work. And I was not happy when she told me that. <laughs> because I was like, mm -hmm. white people are totally messing up the world. And racism isn't going to end until white people end it. Mm -hmm. Like I was in that place and I actually still believe that. I'm not pissed at white people. But I believe that's true. Mm -hmm. And that the work I need to do is to heal from internalized oppression mm -hmm. and do that in communities of color. Mm -hmm. And I can then work with my white colleagues to do an anti-racism training with white people and people of color. And white people need to deal with their racism. And so she's telling me to love a group of people, in my experience at that point, who, who hadn't dealt with their racism. Like, I had not encountered very many white people who acknowledged they were racist, like her. Tim will say I'm racist, I'm anti-racist, I'm both. Um, which is such a, a um, it's brilliant, I think, to be able to 
hold things that seem like they're in opposition in a culture that um, is very polarized. Right. I feel like that and is perpetuates brilliant. that polarization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was a gift when she said, you need to love white people. And it made me just pause and actually made me think about what it, what it means to center love. Like, how do I approach, how can I approach social change work from a place of love? And love's not the only thing. I mean, we need some action, too. For sure. Yep. Um, it's not enough. Yeah. I just, I'm not about beating people over the head, though. I'm not going to use the tools of oppression to liberate people. Like, that's never happening. So she offered it in the spirit of that. Like, I'm not going to blame or shame people. I'm going to be real. I'm not blame or shame them and think that's going to make them be free. Like, that's not freedom. Mm-hmm. It never will be. Um, and she was speaking to that. Mm-hmm. Yes, humans are bundles of contradictions. Yes, we are. Mm-hmm. We are. It, it makes total sense why so many white folks are drawn to yoga. Mm-hmm. Because I think we're experiencing, whether we have language for it or not, internalized oppression mm-hmm. and impacts of whiteness, even though we don't have language around it. Yeah. And, but you can feel it the more I've stepped out of predominantly white spaces the more I can feel the difference mm-hmm. of and and I'm still unpacking and trying to develop um, language around around it um, around whiteness around what it means what white culture is but I can, but I notice I can feel it all throughout my body mm-hmm. the difference between it and I think that that's why so many people are drawn to yoga because it gives them a space to relax and be who they are and and find mm-hmm. freedom in their body yeah um and that's why i think it's also perfect that meeting people like you and reverend angel and kelly carboni woods and phyllis west and Catherine ashton who are now being like okay great that you're finding liberation personally but there's some serious spiritual bypassing going on as well yeah yeah, so, and that's a, spiritual bypassing is a big subject. I mean, you've said a lot in your book. I, yeah, yeah, I, um, well, one, spiritual bypassing was happening, and I didn't understand that's what it was. Mm-hmm. What happened for me is I would hear We Are One in a yoga class or see it written on a wall or see it in the newsletter or see it on the Facebook page for the yoga um, studio or spiritual space. And it always struck me as, like, a lie. Like, uh, we're, really? We are one? Can we look at the cultural context? Because it, it actually suggests, <laughs> like, the counter to that. We are not one. Yeah. So what I say is that I believe in the universal truth, truth of us being one. I do believe we come from one place, from one source. And I also know that that's not how the culture's constructed. Mm-hmm. So it, there was a lot of dissonance for me in spaces when I'd hear that. And then later I learned about it being spiritual bypassing. Like, that's what it was called. Before I learned that term, though, it was really just, like, the dissonance of... And the frustration around perpetuating an idea that we're one through a practice that's, in this country, practiced in a way that doesn't necessarily build community. So it doesn't actually make us feel like we're one. Mm-hmm. We're connected in that way. My learning around it came from that place of um, not being able to tolerate spaces perpetuating the idea that we're one, which actually perpetu- 
perpetuates oppression. That's what I believe about it. So spiritual bypassing is, in my mind, is when we use our spiritual practices like yoga or meditation to avoid the cultural context and the landscape and the trauma that's happening around us. Even though people might go to yoga to heal from trauma, there's not necessarily a conversation about the trauma that's happening culturally and the way that we embody that and then how we perpetuate oppression and harm people from that place. Um, and so I feel like spiritual bypassing is this way that it, it's so related to what I call cultural amnesia, this, this forgetting, this pretending, this lying and denying our history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thinking that we're actually healing through a practice, but we're denying how we came to be in this space and time right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not interested in practicing in that way. I mean, I can't, actually. I can't show up in that way. And I feel like there's such an opportunity in yoga, and so many people practice yoga and meditation for us to center conversations about justice, um, about how we actually use this spiritual practice to illuminate um, the oppression and abuse of power that's happening, and then to figure out what we want to do and where we're located in the system. That's the conversation that I want to have mm-hmm. in a class, whether it's through a Dharma talk or discussion or some sort of movement and a Dharma talk or breath work and thinking about the breath being a liberatory practice and the fact that people can't breathe. And people have said, I can't breathe as the police are murdering them. Right. And I can't stand a spiritual spaces where we deny that's happening. Yeah. Because on a cellular level, we know it's happening and it's impacting us in some way. And to think we can go escape it in a, in a yoga class or through chanting or through sitting on a cushion is an illusion. And isn't yoga about like um, removing the illusion? Yeah. And it's about union. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we can connect to this idea that we're one. Yeah. It's about all that. So I... A lot of spiritual bypassing is going on. Mm-hmm. And, and if we think about yoga in this country and cultural appropriation and how colonized yoga has been here, I feel like a lot of white people are perpetuating spiritual bypassing. And there are people of color doing that for sure, but the face of yoga is not a person of color in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's not who's presented as a teacher mm-hmm. um, or the norm around who a teacher can be or a practitioner. It's not people of color. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's work for everyone to do. And I also feel like white people have power in the yoga community to um, do something other than sell an idea that you can escape from the reality that's happening around you. Mm-hmm. And um, that's tricky because it's like the fish doesn't know it's swimming in water. I yeah. And, yeah. And it's tricky because it takes being physi- like personally impacted yes oftentimes to wake up unless you're a weirdo <laughs> and have some can somehow have empathy even it's though true. it hasn't happened to you that's unusual yeah. it's unusual yeah mm-hmm. so that's what seems really challenging but I think we have to try I have to try anyways <laughs> it's like it's hard enough to get people to care about their own health right and their choices are directly impacting them. Right. Let alone try to get them to take responsibility for her, how their either actions or inactions are indirectly harming others. Right. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's where the yoga... The principles come into play. Right. And yeah. then the principles teach us that. Um, well, 
the principles teach us how to take care of ourselves and other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ethical behaviors, like the treatment of other people and ourselves. So there's some connection there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if we look at the eight limb path, everything's there. And all of it is justice work. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe yoga could, maybe it can be the pathway if we talk about the principles more for people to understand the cultural context and to do some self-reflection and self-study so they know where they're located and how they're benefiting from other people's oppression or how their oppression is harming them and then connecting that to nonviolence, um, ahimsa and yoga mm-hmm. and in yoga connecting to something bigger than us which calls us into something bigger and to mm-hmm. take action in response to what we see mm-hmm. and what we're experiencing and managing our energy as well and thinking about the resources we take mm-hmm. and thinking about what we steal um, taking more than we need all of that is related to justice and all of that is is in yoga and in almost every teacher training there's some discussion about the yamas and niyamas and every one of them has to do with justice work mm-hmm. like what justice for ourselves in our bodies what that feels like in our lives and then the connection to other people because mm-hmm. you know when we're not liberated right and free other people aren't and it's all there. Mm-hmm. I haven't experienced very many, many yoga practitioners living into those principles or centering them as a justice practice. Can we revisit them? They're in the book. Yeah, they're in the book. Yeah. We can revisit them. Yeah, revisit the yamas and niyamas. They're in the, the intro of the book where I mm-hmm. um, share some language so that people understand what I mean when I say certain things in the book and then I lay out the principles so we're really clear and so the yamas are about how we treat other people and um, the first one that I just mentioned is a hint so it's non-violence and so we need to understand that our behavior is impacting other people other people's behaviors it impacts us um, and and understand how um, and that's our thoughts words and actions um, and uh, also, I think Ahimsa calls us into looking at collective oppression and, and abusive power, too, and the relationship between privilege and power. The second one is Satya, which is truthfulness. And this is actually an agreement that I have in spaces um, when I lead workshops. It's about speaking your truth. And how I think about Satya is that dominant culture says there's one singular truth. Everyone's having the same experience all the time. Um, and I think Satya calls us into elevating multiple truths and an awareness that people are having different experiences and it's important to highlight the experiences people are having and to understand the differences and why they're present. Like that's what Satya is about for me. Um, and it's also about listening to understand. So if I know that there are multiple truths, then I can be with someone's truth and their experience instead of countering it, instead of saying, um, but what about this? Instead of centering my experience, right? And so, there's that's a that's a big one. It's a work that's on. a big one. That's like we could just do all of our work there with no, and nonviolence. And then, Estea is about not stealing. And the culture says there's scarcity. There's not enough, and resources are not allocated in a way that is fair or supportive of people. And I I think perpetuating an idea that there's scarcity just makes people take more. Um, who have the capacity to do that and it um, um, oppresses and exploits people who don't have the capacity to to take so this is about how do we what do we actually need and what are we stealing and I also think it's about cultural appropriation too Mm -hmm. and capitalism Mm -hmm. Aparigraha is connected to Estea it's non-possessiveness, non-grasping so letting go of 
our attachments, so our material attachments, um, which, uh, you know, our attachments, they lead us to steal or feel like we need more. Mm-hmm. I also think they lead us to um, need more to numb out and escape from what's, what's going on. Um, and then brahmacharya, which is about energy management. Uh, and, you know, originally brahmacharya was about um, sexual energy. That was what it was focused on, which I, I think is relevant given how oppression operates and um, sexual violence and intimate partner violence. And that wasn't what it was speaking to originally. It was just like how you manage your sexual energy. I think about it as um, connected to resources and energy and space that we're taking up as we're doing the work that we want to do in the world and just being aware that we're not the only person in the space and we need to be mindful of who we might be shutting out or shutting down Mm -hmm. and how we can sit back and invite people into the conversation. So the yamas really feel like there's everything there to have a conversation about how justice overlaps with yoga. Mm -hmm. And the the niyamas are more about our own, our behavior towards us, ourselves. The niyamas are about cleanliness. And I think about that as like clearing and sort of clean thoughts and actions. Integrity is what I think about with that. There's a niyama about um, contentment being with what is. And I feel like that's, it's skillful to be with what is while we understand we have to do something um, different and we have to change things. Being with the despair instead of glossing over it, being with the history and the truth of it instead of acting like it didn't happen or denying it. And then there's a niyama that I love. It's tapas, it's um, heat, and it's about perseverance. And Mm -hmm. so I think about it as the struggle and, and fighting through, moving through fire around what we're devoted to. Like what's our passion, our cause? How do we want to spend our time? Uh, in this lifetime mm-hmm. what do we want to do with mm-hmm. the space that we have on this planet mm-hmm. right now so I think about it that way and then there's self-study and self-reflection which is I feel like we have to do that to create social change I have to understand where I'm located I have to understand I have unconscious bias even if I don't know what the biases are I have to understand internalized oppression and how it plays out for me and how it manifests and how it manifests for people of color I need to be mindful as I take action. I need to understand how my actions impact other people. And that I'm evolving, like we're evolving, we're changing. And so the self-study and self-reflection is about that. And then the last niyama is about source and a connection to spirit. And I feel connected to spirit, so I do speak about it from that space that there's something bigger than me. It's not just me. It's not just me on this planet. It's not just me doing this work. People have done the work before me. It's a commitment to spirit in that way. And spirit means so many things to people. So it's, I think about it as more like there's something bigger at play here. And we can get lost in this idea um, and narrow our perspective and think it's just us. And it's not. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's liberating to think about a connection with spirit and devotion to spirit and spiritual activism. Mm-hmm. Thank you for going yeah. through that. It's an interesting perspective of how our personal work is collect is connected to our, the work we need to do socially. Yeah. Yeah, collectively. Right, because we have to do the personal work too. Yeah. Um, and we have to work on healing ourselves. And we need to understand that's connected to 
the collective and the collective trauma we've experienced. Right, and that reminds me, I saw a video of you saying something about like quoting, uh, if you've come here to save me, mm-hmm. like you're wasting your time, but if you've come because you realize that our liberation is directly connected or tied to each other, mm-hmm. then let's work together, something along those lines. Yes. Yeah. People share that quote a lot. Um, and it's attributed to Lila Watson, although um, it's from Aboriginal organizers. Um, and yeah, I love that the idea that that isn't about saving people; it's about understanding what it means to be in solidarity with, and understanding um, that if I'm suffering, you are, even if we're suffering in different ways, and that if I'm not free, you're not free. And so let's work on all of us being able to be free and access that. I think it calls people into that because there's a lot of saving in social change circles and I can't save anyone. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not It's such a big blind spot. I've, I was guilty of that. I've been guilty of that, of thinking, oh, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to go help out with this thing and this is a good thing to do. Yeah. And it, you know, this, I'm a, it's like, I'm a good person. Look at how much I'm helping. Not realizing how actually patronizing that is right yeah and it's the model of like me knowing what a person needs right so I'm going to save them and I think that's based on white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy and I have something they need yeah and then and then sometimes it may not be for you Mm -hmm. they better be grateful for what I gave them right there's also that yeah which is and you should have said thank you I changed your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a big blind spot. Mm -hmm. You know, especially with this, I don't know, is it called volunteer tourism? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think what I, I am not white. What Mm -hmm. I understand about whiteness though, is that white people are not conditioned to see themselves as a, as a group. Yeah. And so, what does it mean to go to spaces and not just white people are, but many white people are going to spaces to save people who don't look like them and they can leave the space. And so don't have to be committed to that space. And the group of people can just Mm -hmm. say here, Mm -hmm. I know what you need. And whiteness assumes that it knows what everyone needs Um, as a force. It assumes that it assumes that it knows what, what's right um, and good Mm -hmm. and moral and and pure and what's not like that got set up when the construct around race was set up Mm -hmm. who was good and who was bad and who gets to control the narrative Mm -hmm. and so I I feel like it's really useful for people to think about the way we're taking action and is it from this place of liberation and, and understanding suffering and difference or is it about our ego which is counter to what yoga teaches us is it about being in our ego and wanting people to be grateful and taking right is it about that mm-hmm. um, that reminds me of um, how we risk reproducing racism and oppression mm-hmm. as we try to heal it well, you know what I say mm-hmm. in anti-racism trainings, and my mm-hmm. colleagues say this, is mm-hmm. that there's no way to talk about racism without replicating it. 
And what it means is in a uh, training space, we're going to be in groups where people experience racism and people perpetuate racism and oppression. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily a binary like that. I'm just simplifying it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about the trauma of racism and through talking about it, we're probably going to replicate it in some way and cause harm. And re-traumatize. Which is not the intention. Mm-hmm. And I know it's what happens. Mm-hmm. And so we usually say it in a, I usually say it in saying we, dismantling racism trainers, but I usually say it in a space so people know intent doesn't equal impact. And I'm not trying to cause harm. We're in a culture, though, where racism and oppression are at play all the time and are being perpetuated, even as we're trying to heal or illuminate um, or teach people about how oppression operates in this culture. Mm-hmm. So I approach it from that place of knowing that I'm going to perpetuate it in some way. Um, I'm also really clear about the difference in what I'm perpetuating is internalized oppression. So what I'm taking in from the culture about being a black woman, the negative messages I'm taking in, and then how those impact my spirit and heart and mind and body, and then how that happens in a community. So what manifests from internalized oppression is self-doubt and self-hate and sometimes violence and destruction and death can manifest from internalized oppression either physical death or spiritual death or dissociation or mental health issues right so there's work for me to do to understand the uh, about the culture and what it's telling me about being in this black body and being a woman and if we're talking about racism that's not the case for white people although white people may be taking internalizing messages based on oppressed identities that they embody. Um, Whiteness is saying uh, to white people, white is good. And so there's an internalization of superiority, Mm -hmm. even if a white person doesn't identify with that. That's what's being taken in. Mm -hmm. And again, all of us have, I think, identities that are oppressed based on some experiences or identity. And identities, many of us have identities where we're holding privilege too. And we're like moving with both of those at the same time same time Mm -hmm. so part of it is about being clear about our identities with an awareness that they evolve and part of it is about understanding when we're internalizing oppression and when we're internalizing superiority and how that's playing out in our relationships and our work in the world and to always remember that when I am experiencing privilege someone's experiencing oppression so yeah those are some of the things that come up for me when I think about perpetuating oppression as we're trying to heal it. I also think about righteousness. And I've been in many social justice spaces where activists, and this has never resonated with me or aligned with who I am, where activists will use the tools of oppression to tell people who are trying to engage in the movement that they're not doing it right, which just isolates people. And the only thing that thrives in those moments is white supremacy and oppression and capitalism and patriarchy and all of the isms. Because if I can't see that someone, their values are aligned with mine, even if they're approaching the movement in a different way, if I can't see that, then then we can't strengthen the movement. What gets strengthened is divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that a lot. Like there's one right way to be an activist and I don't believe it. And I don't think it serves the movements where engaged in and and the change we're working for to have 
righteousness around us feeling like we know the right way. Mm-hmm. Like I know some things and I don't know what I don't know. Um, and I feel like when there's righteousness and, and we're then perpetuating oppression and using the tools of oppression to harm people as we're trying to create justice, it just creates distance and more isolation and it doesn't serve anyone. Mm-hmm. It's not about wholeness then. It's not about humanity. It's about divisiveness. Mm-hmm. How do you not collapse under the weight of all of this? <laughs> That's a good question. My So about, um, what year was it? It was when George Zimmerman was acquitted. I think, And mm. I write about it in the book, I think 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, when that happened... The moment I found out George Zimmerman had been acquitted, I fell to the floor in the house, in the kitchen. I broke into pieces on the floor. I had never felt um, that way before. I didn't know what was happening to me. And it felt like ancestral trauma was coming up and out. All of the trauma. Mm-hmm. I'd been an anti-racism trainer for years then. I'd been black for my whole life then, right? And <laughs> I, don't know how I was in my still in my 30s then I think and so you know it wasn't that it was a new awareness it was a moment of of collapsing and under well collapsing into this reality that maybe I put weight into a system that has never served people of color well and maybe I thought something was going to change and I actually think it it was a defining moment um, for many people in the culture that there was some hope around accountability and it didn't happen and then it you know of course awareness was raised about police brutality from that um, experience and murdering brown and black people and and the criminal justice system murdering brown and black people and just for being brown and black Mm -hmm. and so I'm on the floor in pieces and I would say that I I'm like in such a different place now but then it took me a long time to heal because I didn't understand the ancestral trauma. I just knew it was present. And I had PTSD from what was happening in the culture, and I would anticipate the next thing that was going to happen. So I was afraid most of the time. And experiencing trauma in this way that I hadn't before, like almost every minute of every day, feeling unsafe and visible, like hyper-visible, unsafe by the culture, feeling visible. And... I don't know what I, well, I do know what happened. I think I did a lot of things to heal and I was aware of what was going on and I found a great therapist, a black woman who I love, who I called and said, racism's gonna kill me. It's the first thing out of my mouth. And she spent 15 minutes with me on this, which therapists don't usually do this, but on this like intake call to set up an appointment and was like totally affirming, like she understood what I was saying like I was stable but I thought racism was going to kill me um, and felt very unsafe so I got support but then um, and I write about this in the book my colleague Cynthia Brown passed away in November of 2016 yeah right after the election the night she passed away I'd been invited to this yoga studio to lead a discussion and you mentioned it earlier in that in that discussion in this yoga studio a white woman all of a sudden felt impacted by oppression and was thinking about the world in a different way because of Trump being elected. So that was going on. She was personally impacted. And 
And while that conversation was happening, Cynthia was dying. And so I left the yoga studio, had a, had a message that Cynthia was dying. And Cynthia was um, a mentor, a teacher, an amazing community organizer in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and she had pancreatic cancer. Right after she was diagnosed, she said, white supremacy gave me cancer and I have to navigate white supremacy to heal from cancer. Which struck me. Because it was so, tr- it was like poignant and it was so true that white supremacy kills people and it can do it really quickly, it can do it slowly, it can do it through police, it can do it through health issues, it can do it through workaholism, right, for mm-hmm. the cause. All these ways, white supremacy gave her cancer. Mm-hmm. The unhealthiness of the toxic air that we're breathing in mm-hmm. because of white supremacy gave her cancer. And then she had to navigate a system of white supremacy to try to heal. So she's dying from white supremacy the night I am in a yoga space working with people who are just waking up. And I sat in front of my altar that night as Cynthia was transitioning and I thought, is white supremacy going to kill me? And then I thought, well, maybe I could walk outside and be killed by white supremacy or a white supremacist or a white person who doesn't identify as a white supremacist but is still perpetuating oppression through white supremacy or a person of color who's dissociated because of internalized oppression. White supremacy might kill me. And then I thought, okay, Cynthia's dying from white supremacy. It might kill me because of the culture, but I'm not going to die doing the work and working myself to death. I'm not going to die working myself to death doing anti-racism work was the clarity I had in that moment. So then, like, I became really radical about my self-care. And so I feel like that's it's a long answer to your question about mm-hmm. not collapsing, but Cynthia is why mm-hmm. I don't collapse. Understanding there's a different way to do the work, understanding the importance of a spiritual practice and grounding, understanding I need a connection to my ancestors to do this work, understanding that my ancestors thrived and survived so I could be in this space doing the work. All of that anchors me. So I'm not, I, there's an unwavering part of me and I've had a colleague say this to me. She's watched me train and she's like, there's a part of you that's untouchable. Like people can be throwing stuff at you and there's a part of you that's not going to let them, you're not going to let them have that part of you. Mm-hmm. And it's very true. And I think it, that part may have always been there, right? I think Cynthia strengthened that for me mm-hmm. of like, you don't get to, you don't get all of me. Mm-hmm. Like white supremacy wants to take me. You don't get, there's part of me that I get and that will live on mm-hmm. when I'm gone. Um, and I'm very clear about it. And I'm very clear about protecting that space and taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. Maya Angelou spoke about that. Mm-hmm. About holding a piece of you that no one ever takes. And that you yeah. need to protect that. Like even in romantic partnership, Especially in romantic partnerships. Yes, it's boundaries. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think everyone has that. We just have to access it, find it. Yeah, and honor it. it. Yeah, and honor it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it means I won't die for the cause. I'm not lip positioning myself to do that. Yeah. From the sense of dying because I've worked myself to death. Right. And because of... From depletion. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. I don't want that for anyone. Yeah, that's futile. What brings you joy? 
you know, I love doing uh, the work I'm doing now around justice and yoga and being in spaces talking about it and guiding people through transformative processes where they can where something I say resonates about justice and yoga and where I can speak my truth and I do it fearlessly I don't know what their experience is I know that I'm so very grounded in my truth so that brings me joy like to be in spaces and do that that's work but that doesn't it doesn't feel like work because it feels like what I'm meant to do Mm -hmm. in the world so I'm joyful when I'm doing work that feels very aligned with every part of me and where you know in yoga I say they're each posture we should be able to feel some effort and ease in those spaces I I feel like I'm putting in effort I'm doing hard work and there's ease because it's the truth that I've been waiting to birth and share for a really long time and then um, my sweet dog is in the uh, on the back seat Jasper is medicine and um, in many ways I think healed me and saved me and he brings me joy and my best friend Amy's her name when I get to spend time with her, because it feels like we've known each other forever, even though we haven't, I feel joyful when I'm with her. Um, and the natural world. I get a lot of information from the natural world, science messages from spirit. And, and when I, after George Zimmerman was acquitted, I started to go outside a lot more and hike a lot more because the natural world is the only thing that made sense to me. Like there was a cycle I could see of death and birth seasons um, that I couldn't locate uh, in my life or in the culture at the time. So I love the expansiveness of um, the natural world. And it brings me peace and joy, for sure. And then I love to train, when I'm doing anti-racism trainings, I love when there's laughter Mm -hmm. or silliness. Mm -hmm. It is heavy, but... Almost every time I trained with trainers from Dismantling Racism Works or even trainers from the organization here in Portland that I've been working with, there's some laughter. Like, we can be joyful in the midst of the trauma of racism. We must, I think. I think it's also another form of resistance. It is. Laughter, music, dance, all of that. Mm -hmm. Rest, all of it. Yeah, and finding beauty as well. Yeah. As I look at you with this... Crown on. Flower crown on. I know, I love it. I'm like, yes, beauty is also a form it's of so resistance. Funny. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. I wear a lot of flower crowns. That's another thing that brings me joy in other people. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, have you found spaces that is where you feel like you belong and you are fully mm. yourself? Um, that's an interesting question because of the last year. So I moved across the country, and now I'm moving back to North Carolina. And when I moved here, my father passed away, and then my grandmother. And so there was a displacement because I moved, but then there was a displacement because roots, like, passed away and transitioned. So I didn't really land here in a way that set me up to feel like I belonged because of my the losses, although I have a great community in Portland, for sure. And, and actually, in response to my father passing away, people just showed up, and I'll be friends with them for life because they showed up in the like midst of deep grief and then with my grandmother on top of that. So I say that because North Carolina, the land feels like home, although this landscape is breathtaking. 
in the Pacific Northwest. But every time I go back, there's like a ease, I feel. And I think it has to do with the land there. The warmth of the land, maybe. And I have, you know, community there, too, which makes me totally feel like I belong. Uh, and this, the work that I'm doing, the spaces I get to go to. I just claim belonging, right? Like, I'm just like, I'm here. Are you with me? That's how I, that's how I feel like I approach it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think everyone needs to belong. I don't think about it that way all the time, though. I just like, especially when I'm doing yoga and justice work, which is all the time, I'm showing up in spaces and I'm assuming I belong there or I'm going to take a space there, which helps. Mm -hmm. Because you, I'm thinking of like how one of the first experiences you really had of that was in grad school. Yeah. And I was just curious how that's evolved as you've evolved and through your work, through embodying, you know, studying, becoming a a yoga teacher. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's through the yoga and justice coming together and being Mm -hmm. able to share that Mm -hmm. and to be that like, yeah, to be it. Mm -hmm. And so I have a place that makes sense to me, Mm -hmm. but doesn't have to make sense to other people. Right. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. What are you most proud of about yourself and your life? I am, um, I am proud of the risks that I take and the way my mother taught me to be fearless or if there's fear to just take a risk. She definitely taught me that. And the book that I wrote, I'm really proud of it. I am very proud of it because it feels like, like I read it and I'm like, oh, I wrote that. Where did that come from? Where did that truth come from or that wisdom? And I know, I mean, I believe it came from me. It just feels like when I read it, I'm like, you said you wrote that. People are quoting that. What, what is it? What's going on? Yeah, I'm proud that despite my middle name, Cassandra, and the myth around Cassandra of not being able to be heard, the people are hearing me. And, and I'm inviting them to and also saying there's urgency around it. So I'm proud of the book and the story in the book and the honesty in the book and then it's like my legacy it's, it'll be here forever so I feel proud of that and you know my mother said she read it I didn't know if she'd read it Not my mom's awesome I just she doesn't practice yoga and I didn't know if she'd read it for mm-hmm. that reason or if it would align but mm-hmm. of course it does mm-hmm. I came from her mm-hmm. and she said it's really powerful. And then she said, it might make some people angry. And I was like, mom, you did this. First of all, (laughs) (laughs) I am your creation. Like you did it. And I'm proud that I wrote the words down and birthed it. And I'm sharing it, even though it's a counter story to what dominant culture says. And there's a risk in me doing it. Um, And there's a risk in me driving across the country, doing a book tour as a black woman. Where, I, where I've written where white supremacy in the book over and over and colonization and genocide. So I'm proud that I'm doing it. That there's the book and I'm like going to share it even though there's a risk for me. You know. So what do you want your legacy to be? 
Mm. So this book, but through it, the the idea that the world's on fire and it always has been and we need some urgency and action and we also must be mindful. And I always say that and I don't know how to do it all the time. It's something I like strive for though. And so I want there to be a practice of responding to the fires and the urgency and contemplative practice and mindfulness and reflection in community. I, I want there to be spaces where people, in spiritual spaces where people are having honest conversations about justice and using that spiritual space to actually create justice. That's the ask, so that's the legacy. Mm-hmm. I want to motivate people to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have a prayer or a wish for our country mm-hmm. or the world or the planet? The planet, mm-hmm. um, and, and we're on it, right? Mm-hmm. So what I always say in my classes is that may all beings everywhere be safe, happy, and free, and may our thoughts, words, and actions contribute to that safety and happiness for everyone and may our world be just may we all find peace there's that which is about people and beings on the planet I also want us to heal the planet I want the I want us to stop destroying the planet and these spaces and the beauty around us and I want us to think about our actions and not just how they affect other people Um, but how they affect other living things around us. Because it's a privilege to be on the planet, even if the world's on fire. And we're, I'm going to say we, the collective is destroying the planet. Mm -hmm. And, And we have climate change deniers in office. Um, So I pray that um, the illusion is removed (laughs) for the people who don't believe that our actions directly impact the planet and the air that we breathe and that we think about our thoughts, words, and actions when we think about the planet. And, and my prayer is really for healing overall. Mm-hmm. Like, let's stop perpetuating trauma and let's heal from it. That's my prayer, my wish. Any final thoughts? Anything further you want to share? Um... One, thank you for making space to share in my car with all my stuff and my dog. It's an honor. Feathers and flowers. (laughs) It's rad. (laughs) I want to just call my grandmother Dorothy into the space because she was 96 when she passed away. And she's shown up a lot, actually, spiritually around me. She's, She's around me a lot. And she was before, but since she passed away, she's around me. And she never got to read the book but the book is dedicated to my grandmother's grandmothers and I wrote that before she passed away and so I want to call her into the space because I want to invite people to think about an ancestor or a teacher or mentor someone a healthy ancestor that can anchor them as we face the fire and step up to it because she was 96 and survived so much She's who I thought about when Trump was elected. Like, oh, how many Trumps has she seen? You know, is what I thought about. And she was joyful, and she had us in her house every Sunday, and she cooked, and 
She went to church. She was devoted. She thrived in the midst of everything that was happening for 96 years. That's amazing. She lived on her own until she passed away. It's amazing. So I want to invite people into calling on someone, an ancestor or teacher, mentor, and remembering that they survived, you know, and And thrived and thrived. Mm -hmm. And we can do that. So I, I invite people to thank you to practice practice that I will practice that yeah yeah mm-hmm. all right love thank you thank you so much so good yeah. you're awesome he's probably like what are they doing yeah. reading interviewing <laughs> dog all the shit's in your car okay <laughs> funny Thank you so much for listening. Again, that was Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and you can learn more about her national book tour and myriad of services at www.michellecjohnson.com. This week, I encourage you to notice your breath, to notice when it's shallow and quick or when you're holding it all together. Oppression takes away the breath. Reclaiming it can be a simple and powerful form of resistance. If you have a story to share or an experience that helped you find your voice, I'd love to hear your story. Please go to she'sher.com to keep in touch and learn of more opportunities to stay connected. Tune in to the next episode. More inspiration, wisdom, and insight is on the way. Until next time, standing in our collective liberation, be well.